something you'll hear me uh, say every week is that our hope and prayer is that you find RUF to be a safe place. Uh, We want RUF to be a safe place for the convinced and the unconvinced alike to come together and examine the truth claims of Christianity. Um, And as I kind of drew out for you last week, we want RUF to be a safe place for you to process because we are all in process. And we're all somewhere along the process. It doesn't matter where you are, whether you want to start it, whether you don't know whether you've started it, whatever. We hope you find RUF a safe place. Uh, and the way that we go about that aim week in and week out is uh, here on Wednesday nights is by opening the Bible together. So we're in the Gospel of Luke this whole semester. Um, we're going to be in chapter 2 tonight. And uh, we've entitled this series, Doctor Who. Uh, Not because I love the show, because I've never seen it, actually. But Luke, uh, we understand to be the physician that Paul mentions in Colossians chapter 4. So he was a doctor. uh, And he's telling us about who Jesus is. So we are asking the doctor this semester, who is this Jesus? And tonight, one simple point. Jesus was born. Now that seems uncreative, that seems simple. Think about how profound that is. Jesus was born. That's what I want to read tonight. Maybe a familiar passage to a lot of you. I'm going to read the first 20 verses of Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, uh, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying... Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray uh, before we look into this. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you 
uh, that you have spoken to us. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe uh, that which you would have for us tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A little sentimental for you at the outset uh, this week. I will never forget uh, when we had Thomas, our firstborn uh, son. Uh, just the, the whole pregnancy, uh, the labor delivery, holding him for the first time. I won't forget it. Um, he was our first child. Uh, we'd barely been married two years. He was a boy. And, you know, I, I, I love having a girl. I always want to have a girl. We do have a girl. But, I mean, or every guy, when you're going to have a boy, that's just something awesome about that. I remember how weird pregnancy was, like, just at night going, there's something inside of you. That is weird. Um, I will never forget holding him for the first time. He had the biggest bug eyes you've ever seen. I don't know if most babies come out like squinting or what, but he had the biggest bug eyes. And I'll never forget the first time I held him, the first time I whispered to him, him just, I, you know, I don't know if he could see anything, but him just locking on me. Oh man, it's just a surreal, as surreal uh, as you can get. But here's most of all, this is what I will never forget. It was gross and terrifying, <laughs> okay? Um, we were scheduled to go in on a Wednesday morning to induce. It was that time. He was ready to come. Uh, Carrie actually went into labor the night before, but she let me fall asleep uh, because she's an amazing wife. Um, Finally woke me up about 6 a.m. was like, uh, we need to go. Uh, so we, we actually lived across the street from the emergency room, like closer than from here to the library. Um, but we got in the car and we drove over there. Um, we're going to walk my wife to the emergency room. Um, so we were there first thing in the morning. She didn't have that baby till 8 p.m., okay? Um, I don't remember much about the day. I don't think Carrie remembers much about it because they gave her drugs. But... I'll guarantee you this. She will not tell you she had fun that day. Okay? Uh, she hadn't slept in 24 hours. I mean, once, uh, once delivery, once we got like the green light for delivery, it only took like 45 minutes only. <laughs> Easy for me to say. Um, y'all, it is the most terrifying thing I've ever been a part of in my life. And I've done it three times. Um, the point is this. We all kind of have this like hallmark card view of of, of childbearing, right? Or having children, right? That children are just these Gerber baby dimples, um, clean. They are messy. They are gross. They are snotty. They spit up. They go number two. I mean, when they're sitting in your lap, it's awesome. Um, it's messy. Uh, and birth is messy. There's a reason like people go to great lengths to insulate that experience, right? To make it as like peaceful and comforting as they can because they're terrified of it. Uh, and I don't blame you ladies. Um, I don't know how you do it. All right. The purpose for me is not to freak you out. We have three children. We wish we could have more. The point is this. We have this hallmark uh, card view of birth when actually it's a very messy thing. We do the same thing with the nativity. Right? With the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. We have this Hallmark card, like cute little kids dressed up in their dad's bathrobes, uh, acting like shepherds, view of the nativity. Um, but when we think about this passage, as Justin Martyr said, that God, in the person of Jesus Christ, endured to be born and to become a man. He endured to be born and to become a man. There's three things I want to look at this tonight, okay? Uh, first is the messiness. 
Second is the message. The lastly, we'll look at the mission. Okay. First one is this. The messiness. The messiness of this story. It is nothing like a Hallmark card, okay? Um, it's one of those bad joke cards that your, your creepy uncle gets you for your birthday. Um, no, it's not that bad. But there's two ways that we see the messiness of this. And this one, here's the outset that really doesn't glare, uh, stick out to us in this passage. But if you know the story, you know it. But you look at verse 5 there. The first messiness or stickiness or muckiness that we don't like really getting dirty with here is the unreal part of this. And the unreal part of this is that Joseph was engaged to Mary and she was already with child, right? His betrothed is already with child. She was a virgin. She had not yet known a man, the Bible tells us explicitly, okay? Chapter 1 of Luke, uh, Luke tells us about how Gabriel, the angel, came to Mary and told her this was going to happen. That the power of God itself was going to come upon her in the Holy Spirit and she would conceive and have a son, okay? And here's the thing about that. If you look back at chapter 1, Mary did not do this. She didn't say, oh, cool, I can't wait. She actually looks back at the angel and says, wait a minute, how can this be since I am a virgin? In Matthew, if you read Matthew's account, Matthew tells the account from Joseph's perspective. Joseph finds out that Mary is expecting. And then an angel comes and tells him what the deal is. And you know what Joseph did not do? Joseph did not say, oh, well, that makes sense. Thanks. No, we're actually told Joseph planned to divorce her quietly so as not to put her to shame. Interesting. Here's the thing. The notion of the virgin birth, it challenges our cultural snobbery. Let's just admit it. We're all cultural snobs. And you may not be a hipster, but we're all cultural snobs in one way or another. Okay. Maybe your thing is socks up to your white socks up to your knees. I don't know. But you're a snob about it if it is your thing. This is something that's not new, something that's been going on uh, forever. This radical assumption that our cultural moment puts us in this supreme seat to be the arbiters of truth of all of history. That somehow because we live in the 21st century, we know exactly what could and could not have been true in history. You hear this, do you not? You read it, do you not? Everything we read about history is always about, well, we know, we're in the, we know that this can't, probably isn't true. How do you know that? I want to know that. Um, here's what is clear. We could spend all night on this, but this is what I want to say. The ancients could not tell you about X and Y chromosomes. But I'll give you a hundred bucks that they could tell you this. Where babies came from. They understood how babies were made, okay? They were not foolish. Uh, they were not that ignorant. And the Bible, but here's the thing. The Bible does not pretend that the virgin birth is just supposed to be like, well, of course he was virgin born. That makes sense. It doesn't do that. It doesn't say, tell you you're an idiot if you don't believe it or if you question it, right? Um, Rob Bell uh, is an ex-pastor, I believe. Uh, he wrote some, some popular books, Velvet Elvis. Um, is that what it was called? Yeah, um, Oh, yeah, love wins uh, was a big one for him. Um, this is one, one time how he tried to deal with the virgin birth. He said this. He basically said um, he tried to liken the virgin birth to just one brick in the whole wall of theology, right? And so he was just kind of saying, if you lose one brick, what are you really losing? 
To which, to date, Mark Driscoll has had the best reply. Well, nothing. Except Jesus. Right? Kevin DeYoung, another pastor up in Michigan, um, on a, he uh, recounts in his book, uh, Taking God at His Word, which we're doing a small group on this semester. In that book, he recounts a blog exchange that he had uh, with another pastor on the internet about uh, the historicity of the virgin birth. And this is what he says the other pastor said uh, to him. He said this, Do I think that the virgin birth is essential to our creed as Christians? That's not really mine to say, is it? I need to take it seriously and take it to heart and wrestle with how I understand it. For my part, I take the statement, all things are possible with God as more valuable to my faith than how can this be since I'm still a virgin. I don't claim that you need to accept my understanding, nor would I imagine that you would claim that I must necessarily accept your understanding. And DeYoung records his answer as being pretty simple and straightforward. Well, actually, I do claim that you need to take my understanding because it's not my understanding. It's the understanding and teaching of the New Testament and the affirmation of the church throughout the centuries. Here's the point. The Bible does not pretend, nor should any of us pretend, that this just makes sense, right? It's miraculous. It's a mystery. It's profound. Mary herself has to wrestle with it and ponder it in her heart, we're told, in chapter 1, okay? But the Bible also does not make any apologies about this. That if God himself was going to come down... He could and would do it on his own terms. That makes sense. That much makes sense at least, right? And the Bible doesn't make any apologies for that. But the second, uh, the second uh, point of messiness that we get stuck on is this. Uh, the first was the unreal. The second one is the all too real. Something I've kind of alluded to in my intro. The circumstances, the, the circumstances of what's going on here um, in the story, okay? And this is kind of what we skip over, forget, or we actually listen to a way in a manger instead of actually what the Bible says. Like, no crying he makes. He was a baby. He cried, okay? He was born out. I mean, ugh, just think about it. He cried. He was a baby. But think about the details here. A, a soon new-to-be father who's not even married yet. Who has to take his ready-to-deliver wife um, to a strange city um, in the, you know, whatever time of year it was. Uh, it wasn't necessarily December. Um, you can think of that if you want. The Bible doesn't say that. Um, a nervous, unwed, most likely pregnant teenager with a strange man going to a strange city, giving birth in a strange place. Okay? Again, let's not go with the way in a manger, but let's actually go with what's here. Okay, while they're there, we read that the time comes for them to have the baby. She has the baby. She wraps him in swaddling cloths and she lies him in a manger. And look what it says there. She lied in verse seven. She laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Get this. That is an explanation because that question is who in the world puts their baby in a manger? So he qualifies it because... There was no room for them in the inn. Now, again, birth is not a Hallmark card. The nativity was not a Hallmark card. Even with our technology, birth is not a Hallmark card, right? Joseph and Mary, they had to have been scared to death. They might have had midwives. I mean, you would hope so. Um, I mean, this young teenage girl, she hadn't even gotten married yet. She's having a baby. She had to have been freaking out. I feel bad for her. Um, 
It would have looked, I mean, you think about the scene, it would have looked like they had killed an animal where they were, okay? I don't have to paint too detailed a picture for you. It would have stunk to high heaven. The experience had to not have been a a favorably memorable one, okay? Now listen for a second. This is where most of you think, what the next thing I'm going to say is, are you going to make room for Jesus? Are you going to be like that crotchety old innkeeper, right? I'm not going to say that. The Bible doesn't, Luke here does not place any blame about no vacancy in the end. The fact is that there was no vacancy. All these people are traveling for a census. The town would have been packed. That makes sense. The fact of it is that there was no room. But the implication, the maker of all things, the one, the New Testament tells us, by whom, for whom, and to whom are all things, came into this world and he couldn't even get a room. That is there. And so now we have to ask the question, what are we going to do with that? What in the whole world are we going to do with that? Well, that's what's interesting because so much ink has been spilled on this nativity, right? Yet Luke gives it the longest gospel, the longest gospel. Luke gives it seven verses. And not really even that because the first few verses are just the context. Okay? Which leads us to the second one here. The second point is this. The message. Okay? The message, the glaring emphasis of Luke and Matthew, for that matter, if you go read Matthew, the only two gospel writers that talk about Jesus' birth, by the way. The glaring emphasis of both of them is not the birth itself, but events surrounding it. Okay, For Luke, as it reads, as the story reads, it is a story, we're reading it, um, as it reads, it's as if he cannot wait to tell you about what happened to the shepherds. He can't wait to get there. So you're like, okay, Jesus was here and this is it. He was born. Okay, let me tell you about the shepherds. And this is where it gets awesome. And it, which begs the question though, who could have made this up? We could spend all night on that. Who could have made this up? I digress. Okay, again, we tend to have a pretty sentimental view of shepherds, right? Uh, for keeping sheep. I, I think for the most part, it's because most of us were raised in church. Uh, we know like Psalm 23, not, even non-Christians know that's about a shepherd maybe. Um, we know that there's bunches of different Bible characters throughout the Bible that are shepherd. Um, but even away from the Bible, you've got the nursery rhyme that Mary had a little lamb and supposedly that was just awesome. Nobody has pet lambs. That's weird, okay? Mary was weird. The Mary that had the lamb. Anyway, um, <laughs> Shepherding, shepherding was not a glorious task. It was not a glory. It was actually inglorious, okay? It was messy. It was hard. Shepherds, uh, just a few things about shepherds. Shepherds were not esteemed. They were actually looked down upon. Actually, very early in the Bible, we learn about this. The Egyptians, at the beginning of the Bible, Egypt is the most powerful and awesome nation in all the world. We're told explicitly at the end of Genesis, as Jacob and his family, who were all shepherds, as they seek refuge in Egypt during a famine, we're told specifically that Egyptians hated shepherds. Okay? I think about like, uh, the Hunger Games in the different districts and like this district is better. You know, it's like that. Um, I'm down with the young people. Um, they lived out in fields. This is, this is important. Maybe uh, not something we easily understand, but they lived out in fields. Therefore, they were unable to keep the ceremonial law. So as far as their religion went, they couldn't keep clean. 
that made them spiritual and societal outcasts. Nobody wanted to become in contact with them because to come in contact with an unclean person would make you unclean, which would mean you could not go to church, synagogue, temple, whatever, on Sunday or Saturday, actually. I know my religions. Um, They were regarded as liars and thieves. They were ragamuffins, okay? They were like gypsies, I guess, if you want to think of it like that. Their testimony was inadmissible in a court of law. If a if ten shepherds witnessed a murder, it didn't matter. You get away with it. Okay? So here's the scale here. They're not as bad as lepers, but they're not as esteemed as women. Women also, their testimony was not admissible in court. They're somewhere in between lepers and women in Old Test in Bible times, okay? Shepherding was not a glorious thing. Yet, follow me. This is where Luke draws our attention. Out of all the stories surrounding the birth of Jesus that Luke had probably heard and could have included, this is the one that he picked. Matthew doesn't include it. Luke is the only one that includes it. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, they say, Let us go and see this thing that's happened, catch it, which the Lord has made known to us. You see, here it is. The context and the story of Jesus' birth by themselves mean nothing. The context and the story of Jesus' birth means nothing unless meaning is given to it. And what we're told is that God sent an angel to shepherds out in the field to let the world know just what had happened. You see what had happened was... The import of this event is in what God had made known. What is, what is it that God's made known? Well, it's what the angel says. Read with me verse 10 and 11. What does the angel say to them? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Okay? You see, the circumstances of Jesus' birth, when we really think about it, if you really think about the reality of the circumstances of Jesus' birth, it makes you uncomfortable. Admit it. If you think about the reality of the king of the universe's entry into time and space, it makes you uncomfortable. It's dark. It's musty. It was most likely gross, to be honest. It's messy. But it's the message. It's the good news. The word there in the Greek is gospel. The angel brings gospel to the shepherds. That is what keys us and helps us make sense of what's going on. Think about the questions. Why was Jesus born the way he was? Why was Jesus born in poor estate? Why was Jesus born to a poor peasant girl? Why was Jesus born to an unwed, humble carpenter? Why was he born and why was the world not watching? And why did they not see it? And here it is. The answer is straightforward. I'll qualify it, but here it is. Our sin. Our sin. Look at what the angel says. The angels say, fear not. Why? Because there's good news. What is the good news? For unto you is born this day a Savior. In other words, the angel says to the shepherds, you need rescue. The whole world needs rescue. 
And it has come at last. That is what the angel is announcing. That is the peace that the angel comes to tell the shepherds that will help the whole world make sense of what just happened. Okay? This is where, but here, again, this is where the gospel story starts to upset us. You feeling it? Just build all this stuff up for you and I just told, it, told you it was your fault. You're welcome. Or at least it starts to upset our pretty little hallmark view of Christmas, right? Because whether we admit it or not, catch this, whether we admit it or not, we believe that God is for the good people. Think about that. Whether you want to admit it or not, whether we actually express that or not, we believe that God is only for the good people. Think about it this way. What, what if we made Christmas all about? Actually, let me put it a different way. Why is it that Christmas is one of the most miserable times of year for so many people? Why? Because we believe that God is for the good people. You know, the ones that have it all together. Those whose families ate dinner together every night growing up. Those whose mommies and daddies touched them in at night. Those who aren't worried that Santa sees them when they're sleeping and knows when they're awake. That is creepy, by the way, and I don't tell my children that. We believe that God is only for the good people. You know, those who went to college to actually study. Those who aren't getting drunk at every opportunity. Those who aren't sleeping with their girlfriend or boyfriend. You know, those people. God, we believe, is for the good people. I hope you're starting to see the beauty of the messiness of this story. Because here's why the angels of heaven can come to a ragtag group of rough and rowdy shepherds and say to them, unto you is born this day a Savior. Unto you, right? And the reason that that is such good news, because what it's telling us is that Jesus came for the precise reason to take on our mess. The messiness of this story is that we do not have a Savior that stands aloof, but one that actually came in and took our muck upon himself and lived it out. Theologians refer to it as his humiliation. The fact that God himself would make the willful choice to be born and become a man. They're not even talking about the end of his life and how that will end. But here's the king. The cross looms behind the stable as well. I don't know how many of y'all remember the just ghastly horror of the Newtown, Connecticut shootings. Um, but if you remember, that happened in December, two years ago. 
Um, and there was a guy named Ross Duthat in the New York Times that I like to read from time to time. And he wrote an amazing post uh, just kind of trying to process it all. And this is what he said. He said, you know, there's a realism about suffering that the Christmas story contains. And that realism may be hard to see at Christmas time when the sentimental side of faith owns the cultural stage. But the Christmas story isn't just the manger and the shepherds and the baby Jesus meek and mild. The rage of Herod is there as well. And the slaughtered innocence of Bethlehem and the myrrh that prepares bodies for the grave. You see the cross looms behind the stable. The shadow of violence Agony and death. And in the leafless hills of western Connecticut, this is the only Christmas spirit that could possibly matter now. If you remember that tragedy, there was no Hallmark card on earth that would have made you feel better about it. But the beauty of the messiness of this story as it is told to us And the reason that our attention is drawn to the destitution that Jesus was born into is so that we would be drawn, our attention would be drawn to the destitution that each and every one of us is born into and that Jesus chose to enter it himself for us. So that we will see that his coming means that he's come to deal with it. He's come to do something about it. He's not content to sit back. He's actually going to come in. And you see there the angels in verse 11, they call him three things. They call him the Savior. Matthew one twenty one. the angel tells Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He's the Savior. He's the Christ. That literally means anointed one. He is God's chosen, God's appointed man. To tap for the task of the salvation of his people. But the last one is this. He's the Lord. Now catch this. Luke has used that term already 20 times in his gospel up to this point. And every single time, you know who he's referring to? God. God himself in the flesh. Last one here. And quickly, the mission, the mission, what in the world are we going to do with all that? You got to ask yourself that you read this story, you hear the story, you've heard me, you're here, you've got to do something with it. What are you going to do with it? Larry King, I don't know how many of y'all know who this is, uh, used to have a show called Larry King Live. Um, I think he's still, I don't know, I don't think I'm not old. Um, he's not that old. Well, he is that old, but he hadn't been on TV in a while. Uh, Larry King was once asked, um, He was once asked if he could pick anyone in all of history to interview, who would he interview? And maybe the answer of Jesus is not really all that surprising, right? But the question he said he would ask him maybe is. One person in all of history that you can interview, Larry picks Jesus. And you know the question he wants to ask him? The question he said he would ask Jesus was, were you indeed virgin born? And he qualifies it by saying, because the answer to that question would define all of history for me. Ding, ding, ding. Larry got it right. This event, in its meaning, if it is true, defines all of history. But more than that, 
it demands that you do something with it. It does. It is claimed to be a historical event, and it claims that you have to do something with it. And I just want to look, run through this. There's three different, three different things we're told that we could do. First one, look at the angels in verse 10. They say that if this is true, if this is true, they say, fear not. From the angel's perspective, if what God says is true, if God in the flesh was really born in a manger, you have nothing to fear. Phil Riken, a commentator, he recounts a missionary who was wrestling uh, with uh, verse 10 and 11 there and how to translate it in the people's language to whom he was ministering to because he didn't really have an equivalent in their language for the word peace, at least not the way that the Bible uses it. And this is what he finally came up with. This is what he said. God in heaven is so good, so the people who live in this world, if God's heart is happy with them, then their fear is all gone now. I love that. Their fear is all gone now. You see, if you look at what the angels say there, what they say is that this is not, when all the angels show up in verse 14, it's not only for the glory of God, though it is indeed for that, but it is also for all of our good on earth, peace among those whom, with whom he is pleased. We all long for peace. Every single one of you in this room is longing for peace. We all long for it. And we're all looking to a million different things to give it to us. But what the birth of Jesus gives us is the peace that is the root of any and every kind of peace. Because it's peace with God. And when we have that peace, as the missionary said, fear is all gone now. Meaning you really don't have to worry about tomorrow. You really don't. Meaning you really don't have to be enslaved to what other people think about you. You really don't. You really do not have to beat yourself up about whether people like you. Meaning you really do not have to have it all figured out. Freshmen, please hear that. You do not have to have it all figured out. You are a freshman in college. Please enjoy that at least for one more day. Football game, okay? If you can't enjoy that, sorry. You really don't have to be in control. Because what the angels tell us is that in Jesus, what we're told is God's heart is happy with you now. Second one is look at the shepherds. Verse 15 and 16, we're told they go with haste. They heard, they investigated, they confirmed, then they celebrated, then they shared with whoever would listen. Phil Riken says it like this. He says, God has promised that those who go looking for him will reach their goal of quest. Verse 20, we read that they returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen. Finally, and this one gets me. Look at Mary. Sweet Mary, right? Verse 19. We're told that she treasured all these things. She pondered them in her heart. I don't know how many of y'all are familiar, uh, end with this, familiar with the best Christmas pageant ever. Is anybody ever a part of that in growing up? Please tell me I'm not the only one. Anyway, there's this book. They used to write books in the day. Um, 
called the best Christmas pageant ever. And it's told from the point of view of this little girl whose mother is going um, is gonna to direct the annual Christmas pageant. And uh, this kind of ragtag group of children that all live together end up in the pageant. And so everybody's just kind of freaking out about how they're going to ruin it because they're terrible kids, okay? Um, but as the last chapter unfolds, the narrator's telling us uh, the roughest of the bunch, Imogene, she gets uh, cast to play Mary, right? She's going to hold baby Jesus. She's going to be in the middle of it all. She was the roughest one of them all. But the night of the pageant, lo and behold, the narrator sees this realism to her playing the role, and it blows the narrator away as she takes such good care of the little baby doll in which she'd never treated anything softly ever in her life. And this is how it kind of goes in the last chapter. I just want to read this for you. Everyone had been waiting all this time for the herdmans to do something absolutely unexpected. And sure enough, that's what happened. Imogene Herdman was crying. In the candlelight, her face was all shiny with tears, and she didn't even bother to wipe them away. She just sat there, awful old Imogene, in her crookedy veil, crying and crying and crying. And this was the funny thing about it all. For years, I had thought about the wonder of Christmas, the mystery of Jesus' birth, and never really understood it. But now, because of the herdmans, it didn't seem so mysterious after all. When Imogene had asked me what the pageant was about, I told her it was about Jesus, but that was, part, that was only part of it. It was about a new baby and his mother and father and who were in a lot of trouble, no money, no place to go, no doctor, nobody they knew. But Imogene, I guess, didn't see it that way. Christmas just came over her all at once, like a case of chills and fever. And so she was crying. Here it is. If you believe tonight, if you call this story your story, this should be your treasure It should do something to you. It should be doing something in you. It should be something in your life. It should be leading you to glorify and praise God with your life, with your words, with your deeds, with your thoughts, day in and day out. It's that powerful. But perhaps you are still, like Mary, at this moment, here in this passage, still wondering, still pondering, Still trying to make sense of it all, right? And I just want to tell you this. It's okay. It's okay. But I do invite you. Listen to Luke. Listen to the angels. Follow the shepherds. And what I pray you will see is that for unto you, is born this day, the Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for the circumstances and the meaning of it all. That our Savior is not one who stands above us or away from us. But our Savior is one that entered into it with us. Took it on himself. Endured the trials and tribulations of this life. Knowing exactly where it would lead him. Because he knew what had to be dealt with. And he knew what had to be done. We long to know that because we all long for peace. 
We pray that you would give us some ounce of that tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.